You and I fight when the enemy of our soul is between our ears in the arena of the mind. And so much of what God has for us waits for our minds to be renewed. So I'm going to read again 1 Corinthians 10 verse 11. I'm I'm reading it out of the Living Bible once again. And um, so if you don't have the Living Bible, you're going to wonder where I got this. But this is out of the Living Bible, 1 Corinthians 10 verse 11. For we must never forget what happened to God's people in the wilderness long ago. God guided them by sending a cloud that moved along ahead of them, and he brought them all safely through the Red Sea. All these things happened to them. Why? Why did they happen to to them? So that we could read about them and learn from them in these last days as the world nears its end. So God has some messages for you and me, last days Christians, He has messages and lessons for us as we read about, study, look at, and discover what they went through. And so today I'm going to talk to you about something crucial that they all had to learn in order to apprehend the will of God, and that was courage. They had to have courage. Can you say the word with me? Courage. Say it like the lion and the wizard of Oz. Courage. Most of you have seen it. Father, we thank you for courage. We thank you that courage comes from God. We thank you, Lord, that we've got to have it if we're going to apprehend what God has for us. Lord, renew our minds today and give us courage today so that what is out there with our name on it can be apprehended not just by faith but by courage. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, turn to your neighbor and tell them, you need courage. Perk up and listen. Michael, could you turn that fan off, please? Thank you. Well, I want to remind you before we get into this that on Wednesday nights, we're doing a series on the Holy Spirit, and it's been a great series. I'm looking forward to it going over the the radio, but it's called the Ministry of the Holy Spirit, and this Wednesday night, we're going to look at the ministry of the Holy Spirit in the Old Testament. What did the saints in the Old Testament experience with the Holy Spirit? Were they filled with the Holy Spirit? Uh, Was he on them or in them? Uh, How did the, the Holy Spirit deal with people in those days? Did they experience being born again? Or were they just people of faith? We're going to look at that Wednesday night. Now, here we are going through Promised Land thinking the fourth week. And the reason I'm sharing on this is because we've got to have our minds renewed. I want you to listen carefully what God says about the renewing of the tape recorder in your head. We need some things to be erased and replaced. We need our minds renewed. The Bible says, be not conformed to this current world. That means we ought to be different from the culture. We are not to think like the culture, walk like the culture, live like the culture, because out there, the Bible calls that world out there Not God's beautiful creation, but the system and the way they think, the satanic world, an evil world. The Bible calls the prince of that world the devil, not the king, but the prince. And so the way you learn to live out there and think out there and be out there is not God's way. So he says, don't be conformed, fashioned into the image of that culture but be transformed. Everybody say transformed. 
transformed. How do you get transformed? By the renewing of your mind. How do you get your mind renewed? By the Word of God. What you've got here in this book is you have 66 books of God's thinking. You have 66 books of God thoughts. And it will renew your mind. Be transformed, changed, undergo a metamorphosis by the renewing of your mind. Why? So that you may know what is that good and acceptable and perfect will of God. You see, our knowledge, you and I, knowing what God's will is for us, waits on the renewing of our mind. It waits on our minds being transformed with God thoughts. We've got to get up every day, ladies and gentlemen, and get into the Word of God. It is not an option, not if you want to grow, not if you want to know the will of God. Now, I've been sharing with you in the last few weeks that the problem with the children of Israel was they were delivered from Egypt, but it would take God a full generation to get Egypt out of them. It took God 40 years to get Egypt out of them, and the first generation failed. Only two out of a million succeeded in grabbing hold of what God had for them, walking by faith and crossing over into the promised land. All the rest of them failed. Why? Did Satan keep them out of the promised land? No. Did God keep them out of the promised land? No. Did Moses keep them out of the promised land? No. Did the giants keep them out of the promised land? No. What kept them out? Their thinking. Their thinking. Remember, I told you last week, all Israel had to do was trust, obey, and believe. That's all they had to do. For 40 years, God tried to teach them to trust God, obey God, and believe what God said about their future. And that's all that we really need to learn to go and apprehend our promised land, is trust Him, obey Him, and believe what He says about our future. Amen. I'm telling you, when you catch what God's vision is for you, it'll change your life. You weren't just saved for heaven, but you were saved for a purpose on this earth. And so was I. And getting our minds renewed, we begin to be introduced to what that vision and that purpose is. They did not learn to trust, obey, and believe. Instead of trusting, obeying, and believing, they became self-absorbed, unbelieving, and chronic complainers. They were not thankful, but they chronically complained. The second generation, on the other hand, rose up with a different mindset. Determined to take the land, they crossed the Jordan under Joshua, and they began to take the cities one by one by one by one, beginning with Jericho. And these second generation wilderness wanderers, the people of God, to whom God had said, I'm going to make of you a great nation, And through that nation, all the nations of the world are going to be blessed. I'm going to make you my special treasure in all the earth, and you have been called to glorify my name. They got a hold of that, and that second generation became characterized as people of action. Can you say with me, action? They took the land. They were people of action. They took the land. And they were also known as people of the bigger picture. They had the bigger picture. It was not all about me, myself, and I, which is some people's Godhead. Me, myself, and I. I worship me, myself, and I. We've talked enough about me, now let's talk about me. They got the bigger picture. 
They said, we're not going over to take the promised land so we can have our little we four and no more, a little family gathering, a little ranch out on the prairie, a little house on the prairie with our kids and our dogs and our pets and our cattle and have our little world. No, no, no. They walked over driven, motivated by the bigger picture. The bigger picture, my hand is on you. I've called you to be a great nation. And from you, all the nations of the world are going to be blessed. And out of you, the Messiah, the Savior of the world is going to come. And they walked over with the bigger picture. Rather than being drowned in doubt, ruined by rebellion, and whipped by worry, they were fearless in faith, successful through obedience, and driven by vision, not fear. Now, another characteristic that exemplified these people was courage. They had to put on courage. Every piece of land they took brought them face to face with giants. Giants were in the land. You know, I've wondered, who were these big boys? They were so intimidating that God told the people through Joshua these words, only do not rebel against the Lord nor fear the people of the land. God had to directly tell them, don't fear the giants of the land, for they are our bread. What a way to look at your enemy. They are our bread. Their protection has departed from them, and the Lord is with us. The Lord is with us. The Lord is with us. Do not fear the giants of the land. Now, Scripture tells us a lot about these giants. I've wondered, what were they so afraid of? Then I did a little investigating and found out they had a lot to be afraid of in the natural. Scripture talks a lot about these giants. In Genesis, it says there were giants in the earth in those days. Giants. In Numbers, we're told about the ten spies describing what they saw. And they said this to a terrified nation. And there, in the promised land, when we went to spy it out, we saw the giants. And we were in our own sight in our own sight, we looked like grasshoppers, and so we were in their sight. They were real concerned about how they looked to the giants. And they said, in our sight, compared to them, we were like little grasshoppers. In Deuteronomy, Moses spoke of them also saying these words, they were a great people, and many, and tall, describing the giants. Joshua spoke about the valley of the giants. Now, I'm going to just take a quick look at one of these giant tribes called the Anakim. Anak means to choke and to strangle, as if strangling somebody with a necklace. They were descendants of the infamous Nephilim, whose physical exploits and deeds were insurmountable. Their legend was acquired not only through the mere fact of their immense size and strength, but also because of their horrible reputation as bullies and tyrants, these giants. These giants were notoriously known for their feats of power and enormous cruelty in warfare. The Old Testament giants were known for being possessed of wicked minds and insatiable appetites. Their immense size, raging appetites, devious minds, and aggressive behavior, technological sophistication, and above all, skill in the art of war struck terror in the hearts of their enemies. These features proved to be a deadly combination, and the giants conquered and enslaved all but the strongest foes with ease. These wicked giants of old were usually found to be ruling over large masses of normal-sized human beings like you and me. 
sometimes even keeping them as slaves. Normal human beings were considered by them to be inferior due to their small size and moderate disposition. These giants constantly lived on the knife's edge of either absolute domination or total extermination of their enemies. In Deuteronomy 3.11, we're told about the most noted of the giant breed. Think about this. Known as Og of Bashan. Og. Hey, here comes Og. Hey, Og. What a name. But you know what? The guy was so big, you said nothing about the name Og. His iron bed in Deuteronomy is described as being nine cubits in length. That comes to approximately 15 feet. Og could easily have been 14 feet tall, a full two feet taller than the most famous giant, Goliath. According to Scripture, Goliath measured 12 feet tall. To get some perspective on his size, try to imagine him standing in your living room. If he tried to stand up in an ordinary room, his bronze helmet would punch through your ceiling. From the chest up, he would be in your attic. Better yet, imagine him trying to walk through a seven-foot doorway to go to the next room. What begins as a comical thought soon looms into a frightening image. If you know that he's against you and fully capable of fighting and massively strong, you'd be looking for a way to get out of the house. But remember, as the Bible measures giants, Goliath was probably on the short side, 12 feet tall. I'm six feet, one and a half. Picture somebody twice as tall as me, muscular, fully girt in armor, and hate your guts, and there's thousands of them. Still, he was big enough for the Philistines to put him forward as their champion against David and against Israel. And Goliath, we should note, was as strong as he was big. Based on the weight of a shekel, his coat of armor weighed about 143 pounds. Just his armor. At the tip of his huge spear, the head alone weighed 17 pounds. Now, I lift weights every once in a while. I'm going to tell you, 17 pounds is not is not a few. And if it's on the edge of a spear and you're holding the spear and you are able to hurl that thing when the, just the head of it is 17 pounds, you are massively strong. By the time he was loaded down with a brass helmet, leg and body armor, boot, sword and shield, he had to be carrying something over 200 pounds of extra weight. Goliath, 200 pounds. No wonder his enemies trembled with fear. Only little David with his faith, five smooth stones and slingshot, would come toward Goliath to fight him. And the children of Israel had to face not one, but thousands of these per tribe. And there were seven tribes in the promised land. Even so, here's what God had told his people. When the Lord your God brings you into the land which you go to possess... And he has cast out many nations before you, the Hittites, Girgashites, Amorites, and all the otherites. You shall give him glory. Notice God said, I know they're big and I know they're strong, but I am going to cast them out before you. <clears throat> and this is the word of the Lord that they had. 
It took courage to go against them. And when these spies went over to the promised land, they took one look at these 12 and 14 foot tall giants capable of fighting, capable of picking you up with one hand and shaking you like a leaf. They trembled, went back. Ten of them told the, the people, said, we cannot do it. We cannot overtake them. But Joshua and Caleb said, yes, we can. You see, when you're a promised land thinker, you're not an I can't person. You're an I can person. I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. Yes, there may be a financial giant. Yes, there may be this giant and that giant. There may be this marriage giant. There may be something there that is bigger and stronger than me, and that's probably true. But guess what? Whatever your giant is, it is not bigger and stronger than the almighty God who lives inside of you. See, courage is where the first generation failed. After hearing the negative report of the spies, here's what they said. All the congregation lifted up their voices and cried, and the people wept all that night long. And the more they cried and the more they wept, the angrier God got, and God finally said to them, that's it, you're not crossing over. I will not allow you to do it because you have not believed me. You didn't trust me, you haven't obeyed me, and you don't believe me about your future. But when Joshua and the second generation were ready to cross over, this is why God told them four times, listen to this, be strong and of good courage. Be strong and of good courage. Be strong and very courageous. Have not I commanded you, he told Joshua, be strong and of good courage. Do not be afraid nor be dismayed for the Lord your God is with you everywhere you go. Courage, 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 courage. And can I tell you something, church? We need to be baptized with a good dose of courage. We need courage today. Remember, not only were their failures written for our admonition, but their successes were written for our admonition. And we need to see they conquered, not just by faith, but by courage. The Christian life that we're living right now takes courage. It takes courage. It says, now the just shall live by faith. But if anybody draws back, if anybody draws back, my soul has no pleasure in him, but we are not of those. We are not of those. I want you to say with me, I am not of those who draw back. No, we've got courage because the one with ultimate courage lives inside of us. And greater is he who is in you than he that is in the world. Courage comes from him. We all have our giants that have to be defeated by courage, and we're all going to need courage in the future. What is courage? Somebody said, courage is fear that has said its prayers. Said its prayers. Courage is fear that has said its prayers. Another person said, courage is doing what you're afraid to do. There's no courage unless you're scared. If you're not scared, you don't need courage. But if you're a little bit scared, that's when you need some courage. Courage is the decision to act in spite of the knot in your stomach. That's what courage is. It takes courage to step out and start a business. It takes courage to stand up for God when nobody is standing with you. It takes courage to decide to make a marriage work that seems like all odds are against it. It takes courage to stay and fight for something God wants you to have instead of turning and running. We have got to have courage. Lack of courage kept the first generation from the promised land. 
It literally robbed them of the promised land. For 40 years, they traversed that wilderness, walking around the mountains over and over. And yet, because of a lack of courage, they did not cross over, didn't eat one of those grapes, didn't enjoy one hour on that land. How crucial is courage? It is so important that you mix your faith with courage. Courage took the second generation into victory. Now think about this. Discouraged means your courage has been dissed. What happened to your courage? Well, I'm discouraged. Oh, you're telling me your courage got dissed. Can I tell you the devil is expert at dissing your courage, but God is expert at encouraging your courage? He puts courage in. The devil takes courage out, but our God puts courage in. He encourages us. And the Bible says that As we see the day of Jesus' return approaching, we ought to be encouraging, pouring courage into one another. I came today not to discourage you, but to pour courage into your tank, that you would walk out of here encouraged in your God. Courage made David a legend in his own time. Courage is what Gideon first lacked but later found. Courage is what made David's mighty men mighty. Courage is what moved Jesus from the garden to the cross. Though he sweated, as it were, great drops of blood and said, if there's any other way that I can do this, Lord, show me. But there wasn't. So our Savior, our author and finisher of our faith, put on courage, stood up, looked at his sleeping disciples and said, let's go. And courage took him from the garden of despair to the cross of victory. And that's why we're saved today, because our Savior is a Savior of courage. Faith cannot act without courage. Did you know that? Courage moved Peter out of the boat into the water. Courage is actually the legs of faith. Faith believes it, but courage puts feet to it. In the church... We don't need gutless wonders anymore, particularly today. We need people who wonder about the gutless. Come on, everybody. Promised land thinkers are people of action, people of the bigger picture, and people who act in spite of the knot in their stomach. They are people of courage. If you don't have courage, you will not take your promised land. Now, unless I'm reading our times wrong, courage is the order of the day. With radical Islamic extremism casting its threatening shadow over the world and radical secular humanism seeking to gut our nation of every vestige of God and Christ, the church doesn't need spineless wonders. We need wonders with a spine. We need sizzling Simon Peters who will stand and preach an uncompromised gospel. We need powerful Pauls who will risk life and limb to carry Christ to a dying world. We need saintly Stevens whose faces shine like an angel's face before a hostile world. We need Joshua's and Caleb's who see the possibilities, not the impossibilities, who look to the God who can, not the flesh that can't. We need people of courage. Come on, church. I came to preach today.
Joshua and Caleb were men of courage. After spying out the promised land, they said to Moses and to the people, let us go up at once. Let's do it at once. I'm ready if you're ready. Let's go. Let's get after it and take possession for we are well able to overcome it and them. That's what I like. I like promised land thinkers. Wilderness thinkers, God bless you. Congregate together. Have your talks. Talk yourselves down. I don't want to be with you. I need people who can say to me, let's go up at once. We can take it. We can do it. We are well able to overcome and win in the name of Jesus. Look at your neighbor and say, courage. In the famous movie, The Wizard of Oz, Dorothy, played by Judy Garland, is transported to a land called Oz. There she meets three companions. You remember them. And all of those companions, all three of them, functioned imperfectly or were damaged in some way. Have you ever thought about that? The tin man, who when asked by Dorothy what his problem was, said, Well, the tinsmith who made me forgot to give me a heart. I don't have a heart. Then she went to the scarecrow. And the scarecrow informed Dorothy that he didn't have a brain. He said, quote, I can't make up my mind. I haven't got a brain, only straw. The cowardly lion, who was the last one she met, was paralyzed by timidity, scared by the sheep that he counts to fall asleep. All three of Dorothy's companions sing to her a song that reveals their secret fears, insecurities, and longings. If only I had a brain, if only I had a heart, if only I had the nerve. Dorothy's mission, I've never thought about this till just lately. Her mission becomes getting all three of her friends to meet the Wizard of Oz in hopes they'll be healed of their infirmities. And they're off to see the wizard, the wonderful Wizard of Oz, hoping that the scarecrow gets a brain and Tin Man gets a heart and the lion gets courage. When she invites the lion to join the group, she encourages him by saying this, I'm sure that he can give you some courage. And here's what the lion said. The lion responds that his life has been unbearable, unbearable without courage. Life is unbearable without courage. To live in fear is unbearable. To want something and be afraid to reach out for it is unbearable. To have a dream and not be able to cross over and seize hold of it because you're afraid to take a step, that is unbearable. To be ruled by fear and doubt and uncertainty instead of faith is unbearable. At the end of the movie, the wizard grants their wishes by healing them of the defects. But here's how he does it. He does it by telling Dorothy's three friends they already have the qualities that they are asking for within themselves. They've already got what they thought they didn't have. I read about a circus elephant who was raised from a little bitty elephant to a full-grown adult elephant. He lived in the circus ring with his foot held in the ground by a stake and a chain. One little stake, one little chain, and this elephant grew to be this massive creature. That little stake looked like a toothpick. The chain was nothing to him, but because all he'd ever known was that chain and that stake, instead of just moving his massive leg and pulling it from the ground and walking in freedom, he walked in circles around that stake because he did not know what was in him. 
Let me tell you something, church. Inside of you is the King of kings, the Lord of lords, the Lord of glory, the, 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 the Alpha and the Omega, the mighty God, the everlasting Father, the Prince of Peace. He lives inside of you. Why are you allowing your life to be tied down by a stake from the past when because of the one who lives in you, you could yank it out today and walk free in the name of Jesus? You see, they already had in them what they needed. The scarecrow, he had a brain. He could talk. He was functioning. And the tin man had a heart. He grew to love Dorothy. It broke his heart that he thought he did not have when she said she was leaving. And the lion, he had the courage. It just needed to be summoned up from deep within him. And I'm telling you, Paul wrote to Timothy, who was timid Timothy at the time, who was cowering in fear, afraid to go and evangelize. And he said to him, Timothy, what you need is already inside of you. Stir up the gift of God which is within you stir it up fan the flame because you have not been given a spirit of fear but of power and of love and of a sound mind stir it up son you've got everything you need inside of you We need courage if we're going to take the promised land. There's going to come a moment we need guts. We need some we need some holy guts. Courage comes from within, from the Spirit of God who dwells in you. Courage, courage, courage. Timothy didn't need something new. He needed only to access what was already in him. You'd be amazed at what's inside of you. You'd be amazed at what you can do when you decide you can do it through God. I'm not up here preaching Norman Vincent Peale positive thinking. I'm preaching New Testament Christianity. Paul said, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. I was thinking recently about the blockbuster Oscar-winning movie, Chariots of Fire. You had two men in that movie, Harold Abrahams and Eric Little. They, they ran in the 1924 Paris Olympics, and Harold Abrahams had never found anybody who could match his speed. He was a Jewish young man, and because he was self-conscious about being Jewish in that particular day, he used his running, his expertise, and his skill in running to overcome the defects that he felt that he had because he was Jewish. And when he first went to the college that he ended up in, he broke a 700-year-old record. The first man to run a certain distance in a certain time faster than one who had done it 700 years before. And when the coaches watched him, they said, is anybody as fast as this Jewish young man Harold Abrahams. One of his classmates came up to him and said, don't you hate losing? I just hate losing. He said, I don't know. I've never lost. Until he met Eric Little. Eric Little was a Christian Scotsman. And his family wanted him to go to the mission field. And he was torn. Do I go to the mission field or do I run? Because you see, I feel called to missions, but God also made me fast. So he decided to run in the Olympics, and he got into a race with Harold Abrahams, and they raced, and he beat Harold Abrahams for the first time in Abrahams' life. He was so dejected, so down, so depressed, he went walking off and said to his girlfriend, I run to win. If I can't win, I won't run. 
And she said something to him I've never forgotten. She said, if you don't run, you can't win. If you don't run, you can't win. You're so worried about winning, you don't run. There comes a moment when every one of us has got to arise in courage and say, if I don't go for it, I won't get it. If I don't run, I won't win. If I don't reach for it, I'll never apprehend it. There comes a time you got to get off your blessed assurance and go for it. Come on, everybody. Life is too short to sit around and do nothing. Why sit we here until we die? If you don't run for that dream, run for that goal, run for that purpose, run for that destiny, you won't win. I don't know about you, but I'm flinging off of myself everything that holds me back, and I'm running with patience the race that is set before me that I might apprehend that for which I was apprehended. Say with me, courage. But Eric Little, he got into those 1924 Olympics and he won the gold. But then he kept on running because he went to the mission field. And for years, he ministered to people in the name of Jesus. He gave all the glory to God for his running, even refusing to run on a Sunday. He died in a Japanese internment camp as a missionary and a martyr for God. He ran way after the Olympics. He kept running. And he kept running, and he kept running. And he could say, I've finished my course. I've kept the faith. I fought a good fight. He died winning a better gold. Now, let me bring this all home and tell you how important courage is. Every dream, aspiration, and vision you have for your future will require a measure of courage. The day is going to arrive when you've done all your preparing, you've gathered all your necessary information and facts, and you're standing on the side of the boat with Christ just in the distance saying, come on, it's time now to step out. And you will breathe deep, ignore the slight knot in your stomach, say a prayer summon courage from deep within and walk out on the water of your dream. You're going to step when you don't think you can. And you're going to reach when you don't think you can. And you're going to go for it whether there's a knot in your stomach or not. And you're going to discover that courage is the wind beneath the wings of your faith. We need courage. We need courage. Our church is about to take a courageous step. I'm ready. I'm ready. It's time. Where do you need courage in your life? Where do you need it? Where do you need courage? Is it to face a reality about yourself? You know, that's hard to do. Sometimes the greatest battles are totally unseen and unknown by most people who surround you. Do you need to face something within yourself? That takes courage. 
Do you need to admit that something keeps taking you down? That takes courage. Do you need to look at your spouse and say, you know what, we're in trouble. We need to work on this marriage. That takes courage. That takes gut courage. Where do you need courage in your life? Can I tell you what the Wizard of Oz and what God has said? It's already in you. Summon the courage and take your step and seize the promised land. Can we stand? You know, Kathy and I have um, birthed three churches. We, we've never... We've never, it's never been easy, and we've never felt, well, let me put it this way, we never did it without a knot in our stomach. Never. When you go for the big one, and, and, and you're getting a building, and all of that, you don't just go, oh, hallelujah. You go, you know, if you're a little bit afraid, that's when you need courage. Amen. Isn't that real? Isn't that where the rubber meets the road? We're real people. You think Peter, when he saw Jesus out there, said, oh, yeah, big deal. I'm stepping in the middle of the ocean. And he's pretty far out there. No, he had courage. And courage was the wind beneath the wings of his faith, and he stepped. The other sissies in the boat had no room to point when he started sinking. He could say to all of them 30 years later, well, say what you want. I walked on water. (laughs) How many of you need courage today somewhere in your life? Amen. Don't we all? It's within you. Lord, in Jesus' name, we thank you for courage. We thank you for the word you gave to Joshua, that they had to have courage to take the promised land, to face those massive giants. To believe that God was with them, for they were so outnumbered otherwise. Thank you, Lord, that they ran towards the roar and conquered the promised land. And only a few giants remained by the time they were done. They took it. Now, Lord, I pray for everyone in this room facing a giant. That, God, you will help them, strengthen them. Give them courage. Help them to summon that courage from deep inside to pull on the power of the Holy Ghost, to build their faith in the Word of God, renew their minds. And as a church, Lord, help us to have courage as we step forward in the days to come. Thank you for it, Lord. Now, Steve plays, I want you to take a minute, and wherever you need courage, wherever it is, I want you to thank God that you have the courage you need and talk to him about it as Steve plays and we worship just for a minute. Thank you, Lord. Thank you, Lord.